Mad Men charts the trials and campaigns of an advertising agency in 1960s New York. And around the same time that a fictitious John Draper was being made senior partner in a fictional Manhattan, over in real-life London, a very real company was helping create the swinging 60s. Collett Dickinson Pierce was one of the most creative and influential agencies, not only in Britain, but the entire world. Ford, Texaco, Heineken, British Airways, Cinzano, Hamlet Cigars, Harvey's Bristol Cream, Parker Pens, and Pretty Polly Tights were just some of the brands that benefited from the ingenious posters, witty end lines, and groundbreaking TV commercials. Collett Dickinson Pierce helped make commercials part of an evening's entertainment, and even the cinema-going experience. These weren't just ads, these were epics. Ridley Scott, Tony Scott, Alan Parker, and Adrian Lyne all began directing with the agency. Charles and Mara Sachi worked there as well, as did producer David Putnam. Putnam started as an account executive, and to this day, he considers his time at the agency as difficult, but very informative. I said to him, you know, you were an absolute bastard to work for. You never really gave us much encouragement, and I don't ever remember you giving me an idea and think. He said, no, I didn't. He said, I did something bloody more important. I taught you to think for yourself. And it was true, and he had. What he taught us was that your first idea, or something that was quite good, was where you started from. It wasn't where you finished. Putnam struck out on his own, and by 1971, he was producing feature films. He produced Ridley Scott's first film, The Duelists, which won the camera door at Cannes in 1977. And the next year, he produced Alan Parker's second film, Midnight Express, which won two Oscars. Putnam had also been nominated, and while in Los Angeles, he found an old book about the Olympic Games. There was a tiny piece on the 1924 Paris Games, where two very different personalities, Eric Little and Harold Abrahams, both won gold medals for Great Britain. Inspired by that one paragraph, Putnam hired writer Colin Welland to research the material and draw up a script. Welland would ultimately win an Oscar for his work, and you can read his drafts in the archives of the British Film Institute. Originally, the project was called Runners, and seeing the pages that Welland wrote out in longhand, it is interesting to see how he builds a story firstly around the differences and then the similarities between Little and Abrahams. Little was born to Scottish missionaries in China, and as a devout Christian, he cherished what he believed was literally a God-given gift. So where does the power come from to see the race to its end from within? Jenny, I believe God made me for a purpose. But he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. His specialty was the 100 metres. But such was his faith, little never ran on Sundays. So when he learned that the 100 metre final was to be held on a Sunday, he switched to the 400 metres and won gold. By contrast, Harold Abrahams was a Jewish athlete studying at Cambridge. Although Abrahams was president of the University Athletics Club, a member of the University Liberal Club and the Gilbert and Sullivan Society, he was an outsider. The anti-Semitism aimed at Abrahams was sometimes explicit and other times disguised, such as the complaint that his desire to win showed he was only out for himself. His professionalism was selfish and too ambitious. I am a Cambridge man first and last. I am an Englishman first and last. What I have achieved, what I intend to achieve is for my family, my university and my country. And I bitterly resent your suggesting otherwise. 
The Cambridge authorities were dismayed that Abrahams had hired a personal trainer, Sam Musabini. Yet it was Musabini's modern coaching methods that helped Abrahams win gold in the 100 metres. As Welland got the script into shape, Putnam hired a director who had also worked with Collett Dickinson Pierce. Hugh Hudson had spent years making commercials and was famed for one in particular. It's called Iguana and you can watch it on YouTube. I remember seeing it in the cinema as a child and being utterly mesmerised. Lizards bake in the heat of an empty swimming pool. Then a helicopter comes chopping through Monument Valley. It is carrying an enormous crate. The sluices in the swimming pool open, water gushes in, the helicopter drops the crate and a scuba diver swims through the pool. He peels open the crate as if it were a giant can of sardines to reveal inside Benson Hedges cigarettes. I think it's Hugh Hudson's best film. Chariots of Fire has aged badly. While the script's theme remains sound, the dialogue is rarely more than genteel and few characters really register. Ian Charlson as Eric Little stands out, as does Ian Holm as Sam Musabini. But you know a film is in difficulty if, even as a 12-year-old boy, you're struck more by the costumes than by the characters. The costumes are good. Milena Cananero received an Oscar for her designs, as did Van Gallis for his music. It was one of the first electronic scores, and it's unique here for being a modern score for a period film. The cinematography by David Watkin offers memorable images. Everyone remembers the athletes running along the beach. But I always recall a close-up of a champagne glass wobbling on a fence as an athlete hurdles over it. I also remember the sound design. When the runners were preparing for the final sprint, the background collapses to silence and suddenly each little scrape in the earth is amplified. Those moments are filmed in slow motion and there lies the error. Hudson uses it so often that while it looks graceful, it offers little dramatic tension. This is a film about sprinters and it just slows everything down. The film is limp. So limp, I wonder if Hudson had filmed it at the regular speed, just how long would it have been? 10.2 seconds? <laughs> 